What you're about to hear is the third episode of a new history channel on YouTube called the Pacific War Channel. Now, this is part two of a three-part series consisting of the disaster that led to the Opium Wars, the First Opium War, and the Second Opium War. If you like your stories in some sort of linear order, it might be a good idea to listen to the previous episode. If that does not bother you, then by all means, enjoy regardless. From 1839 to 1842, this event remains one of the most controversial and devastating West meets East stories of all time. This is the First Opium War. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Uh, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945. We are currently looking at the major historical events that led up to the Pacific War, and today's episode is on the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842. So if you've not already subscribed and or left a like, please do so now, as, as you can see this bird does cost a few seeds or two. Now please bear with me, this is an extremely complicated war with a lot of battles and honestly deserved a minimum of an hour-long episode, but I did my best to summarize it. Having said that, if you did not already see the previous episode explaining how we got here, please click on the card above and watch that first. So to briefly summarize, Britain became economically dependent on importing tea from China, which it could only pay for using silver. This trade was a major silver deficit for Britain, and it went on for over a century. After the American Revolution, Britain lost almost all of its remaining silver to war debts and could no longer purchase tea from China. Britain then came up with the idea of selling opium to China to receive silver to pay for its tea addiction. This led to the High Commissioner Lin Zexu to confiscate over 20,000 chests of opium from British merchants while taking British factories in Canton hostage, which was under a siege. The chief superintendent, Captain Charles Elliot, promised that the British government would reimburse the merchants, which the British government never agreed to do. So Charles Elliot messed up when he promised the British merchants that the British government would compensate them for the confiscated opium. The British government, as a result, promised $2.5 million of compensation, which was just a mere fraction of the $20 million lost. By May 1839, the merchants began complaining to Parliament for British troops to be sent to extract the compensation from the Chinese. By June, Elliot allied himself to the merchants' cause and asked the Foreign Secretary for warships and troops. During all of this opium business, which was going on, one confiscation effort was not going to stop it. Elliot ordered the remaining British left in Canton to evacuate so there would be no hostages at stake, and now he felt free to attack the Chinese. On June 10, 1839, the Chinese ships stopped British ships from bringing food and water ashore to the British who were stuck in Macau. Elliot warned Lin that if the Chinese ships did not stop doing this, conflict would occur. Lin countered this threat by stating the ships were being stopped because they were transporting opium, which they most certainly were. The situation was tense and was about to get worse. In Hong Kong, a Chinese warship arrested the comprador of a British ship, the Carnatic. 
This enraged British sailors, who demanded his return and planned revenge. On July the 12th, 30 seamen of Carnatic and Mangalore went ashore and got blind drunk on Shamshu. It's a fermented rice alcoholic beverage, I believe. They soon began destroying property in town and beat up locals, one of which was named Lin Weiji, who died the next day from his beatings. Lin was furious by this and demanded the murderer of Lin Weiji to be handed over for Chinese justice, which the British presumed would be an execution. It most likely would have been. In Lin's words, he who kills a man must pay the penalty of life. Instead of handing anyone over, Elliot performed his own inquiry and court, which led to charges of riot and assault, but no murder or manslaughter. Go figure. Elliot refused to hand over anyone, and Lin saw this as British unilaterally denying Chinese sovereignty. Lin then officially forbid the sale of food or water to all British citizens under penalty of death until the murderer of Weiji was handed over. On August 24th, Macau's governor, Don Adrio Acasio de Silveira Pinto, I'm sorry, that's a little difficult name, announced the Chinese had ordered him to expel the British from the colony. The same day, two ships, the Harriet and Black Joke, arrived in Macau. Black Joke is a really cool name for a ship. The Black Joke had blood all over its decks. The entire crew disappeared, being towed in by the Harriet. The British soon learned that the night before, unidentified Chinese boarded the Black Joke as it passed Lantau Island, massacring the entire crew, reported by a sole survivor of the incident. Actually, this guy was holding on to one of the rudders on the back of the ship, and he just wasn't seen by the Chinese, apparently, and he survived the entire trip, being dragged in the water. It's pretty fascinating when I read that little remark. Side note. A day later, the gunboat Vallaj arrived from India with news that another warship, the Hyacinth, would be arriving shortly. Elliot ordered everyone to sail out from Macau to Kowloon Peninsula above Hong Kong. Lin sailed out to find the British all stuck on their boats in Kowloon and made a naval standoff. Elliot realized the Chinese were again stopping food and water shipments to his people and demanded that food and water be given to them by 2 p.m. or else he would attack the Chinese warships. When 2 p.m. came without response, Captain Henry Smith of the Village fired on the nearest Chinese ship, and this is technically known as the first shot of the Opium War. The Chinese named it the Battle of Kowloon. The British fired grape shot and round shot at the Chinese, killing and wounding a few. The outdated cannons on the Chinese warships were aimed too high and missed all the British warships when they fired. Please take note of this as it's going to be a very large issue for the next two episodes. These cannons in question. The British ships soon ran out of cartridges and fled the scene with the Chinese in pursuit. But eventually they gave up. The Chinese reported to Lin a great naval victory over the British interlopers, including the sinking of enemy ships and inflicting 50 casualties. But in reality, the British ships were not sunk. There was no casualties on the British side. And uh, the British, honestly, they only reported maybe one drowned sailor. So it, uh, they were lying. Lin made a surprising compromise by asking Elliot to deliver him the drowned sailor's corpse that I just mentioned to be served up as the murderer of Weiji. 
the supposed reason for all the conflict in question. Elliot refused, because handing over even a corpse would be surrendering British judicial sovereignty. Luckily for Elliot, the hyacinth arrived, and a letter from the Foreign Secretary, Palmerston, on October 20th, 1839, arrived. The letter informed him that the next summer, 16 British ships with four troops would arrive to rescue them from Kowloon, Hong Kong Harbor. While Elliot went, wanted to wait for reinforcements to arrive, he had another problem. British merchant captains had been striking a deal with Lin, promising to not trade opium. Under the penalty of death, a contract that belittled British sovereignty was made between them. Elliot made the decision to act out before more captains signed these contracts, which really went over his head, to be honest, and he ordered a blockade on the Pearl River. When the British ships got to Chumpei on the Pearl River, they found a fleet of 15 Chinese war junks, 14 fire ships, all commanded by an old and revered admiral, Khan Chiampei. Elliot hesitated to attack, but Captain Smith of the Volage demanded that they strike at the Chinese. Quan anchored then his ships directly between the British warships and the merchant ships, forcing Elliot to give in to Smith's demands. The British ships went broadside and fired on the Chinese. The Chinese warships' stationary guns could not aim effectively and fired over the mass of the British warships yet again. One lucky volley hit the Chinese warships' magazine, exploding it. This caused a massive panic, and the Volage scored more hits at closer range, taking out another three Chinese warships. The, the entire Chinese fleet fled, leaving Khan's flagship alone, in which he made a suicidal last stand, firing upon the British. Elliot and the British were so impressed by old Khan, they honestly just allowed him to flee unharmed. This fleet battle was known as the Sea Battle of Chumbai where over 26 Chinese warships, the largest fleet that they could muster, was bested by only two British warships, and not a single British casualty occurred, whereupon around 15 Chinese had died. News of the sea battle reached British government, who remained in denial on the reasons for the friction, that being the illicit opium trade. On June the 4th, the Bombay Chamber of Commerce now petitioned Queen Victoria demanding compensation for the confiscated opium and military action to prevent future seizures. On April 24th, 1840, the British cabinet met to deal with the China problem. Goaded by his secretary and state of war, Thomas Bamington Macaulay, Prime Minister Melbourne came up with an ingenious way to finance the war against China. Frankly, we're going to make China pay for it. Honestly, this is what he said. So the British saw the event as a quick and easy victory. They would force the Chinese to pay reparations, which would serve to pay off the opium confiscated debt to the government. So it was a win-win. To save face in the public opinion, however, the British government stated that millions would be spent in the defense of British subjects in China, but not a single penny of compensation over opium. Not a single vote would even speak of reimbursement. They needed to keep very quiet about this. On top of all this, some British war hawks floated the idea that after hostilities brought upon China to heal, perhaps the country would become a British jewel similar to the British Raj. Palmerston sent orders to Elliot to prepare for official war. In his letter, Palmerston instructed the blockade of the Pearl River, Yangtze River, and the capture of Chushan Island, and to then negotiate with the 
Qing officials. His second letter was for the emperor, which demanded to be treated with respect due to the royal envoy by Qing authorities, secure the right of British superintendent to administer justice to British subjects in China, compensation for destroyed British property, to have the most favorable trading status with the Chinese government, the right for foreigners to safely inhabit and own property in China, ensure that if contraband is seized in accordance with Chinese law, no harm comes to the persons of British subjects carrying illicit goods in China, and the Canton system, ask for the cities of Canton, Amoy, Shanghai, and Yingpo, and the province of northern Formosa to be freely open to trade for all foreign powers, and lastly, secure islands along the Chinese coast that can easily be defended and provisioned or exchanged capture islands for favorable trading terms. So, on June the 9th, 1840, Palmerston's promised military assistance to Elliot arrived. Three third-rate ships of the line ships Wellesley, Blemheim, and Melville, four armed steamers Atalanta, Enterprise, Madagascar, and Queen, and a small armada of 27 troop ships, all bearing with the 26 Cameronians, the 18th Royal Irish, and the 49th Bengal volunteers all came to save China from the Chinese, quite frankly. And of course, the ships brought with them secretly 10,000 chests of opium. Don't forget, opium is being traded the entire time this war is going on, and never stopped. Sir George Eliot, the cousin of Charles Eliot, to make this even more confusing, joined the Armada to make this more complicated, and both Eliots boarded the Wesley, sailing for Trushan Island. On July the 1st, the Amarta anchored in the harbor of Jinghai on the Chusan Island, 100 miles southeast of Shanghai. Twelve Chinese warships followed the British Armada from a safe distance. The British sent an envoy demanding the surrender of Chushan in 24 hours or to face the consequences. The 24 hours passed and the Chinese did not surrender. At 2 p.m. on July the 5th, the Wellesley fired a single cannonade at a tower which served as a buffer for Jinghai, a mile inland. The Chinese responded with a single shot. Then they began returning volleys for about 10 minutes as Lieutenant Colonel George Burrell, commander of the 18th Brigade, led a landing party in small ships. Inexplicably, the Chinese ceased fire as the assault team approached ashore. The British made good use of the ceasefire by blowing up four Chinese warships. The British guns demolished the fort's towers and seawalls as men landed ashore where there was no one to fight. The Chinese defenders had fled almost as soon as the gunfire began, and the brigadier Zhang had his legs blown off by a bombardment and was fleeing on a litter. A detachment of Indian soldiers set up an artillery position on a hill overlooking Jinghai and began to shell the defenseless inhabitants. The British, without losing one man, planted the flag by the Joss House after 45 minutes between landing and taking the hill. The Chinese dead numbered around 13. News came to Peking where terrified mandarins lied to the emperor about the crisis and making it seem like the British were weak and ineffective. Take note of this as the emperor will be fed propaganda by his own people during the entire war as they were too afraid to admit how serious the situation had become. Qishan, a high-ranking Manchu official, replaced Lin after he was discharged for his failure to solve the opioid crisis. Elliot met with Qishan in Beihebei 
on the Pearl River to negotiate as the capture of Chushan certainly threatened the emperor. Kishan demanded a promise that the British would cease exporting opium. Elliot said he didn't have the power to grant such a concession and argued that if the Chinese wanted the opium trade to end, they should simply stop using it. This argument would be used consistently by British during the war. It's quite cute. Elliot then forcefully demanded reparations for the 20,000 chests of opium that were confiscated to reimburse British for the war. Kushan called these demands absurd, and talks began to lead nowhere. Kushan advised that should they all meet in Canton instead, obviously trying to get all the British far away from the capital and the emperor, you know, as soon as possible, because he was under threat during all this. Elliot felt the fleet was unprotected in Beihubei, and he sailed away giving the Chinese the impression the invaders were not continuing the war. On November the 25th, 1840, a 660-ton steamship named Nemesis arrived at Macau. Remember, this ship's name, as it becomes a nightmare and a legend during this war. An exemplar of the state of our technology, Nemesis was the first steam-powered vessel to round the treacherous Cape of Good Hope. Steam power was to make its worldwide naval debut in the First Opium War. The Nemesis arrived during the next parley between Kishan and the Elliots on November the 29th, 1840 in Canton. This time, Elliot demanded the opening of Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai, the surrender of an unspecified island, and the reimbursement for the confiscated opium alongside reparations for British war costs. Qishan agreed to pay 5 million over 12 years. Elliot demanded 7 million in 6 years and the surrender of Amoy and Chushan as permanent British possessions. They eventually agreed on 6 million, but Qishan flat out refused the territorial demands. By 1841, with no movement from either side, a rumor came about that the emperor had decided on further war. Elliot began preparations for an attack on Chimbai and told Kushan that the strike would happen on January the 7th. As promised, on January the 7th, 1,500 Indian soldiers, 100 British Marines aboard Nemesis, Enterprise, Madagascar, Calliope, Hyacinth, Larne, Samarang, Druid, Modest, and Columbine attacked Chumbay. They targeted the walls of Taikoktau, I probably mispronounced that one, sorry, and 8,000 men within the forts returned fire, but stopped only after a few minutes. The Chinese cannons had been tied down and couldn't be aimed at the invaders. How many times am I going to mention Chinese cannons not being able to aim? Very many times. Probably in the next episode too. Anyways, the Anglo-Indian force took advantage of the ceasefire, and the Marines went over Chumbai's earth walls at 9.30 a.m. The elite Manchu warrior troops waved flags and banged on gongs in defiance beginning to open fire, but volleys from the British men of war soon knocked out their guns. The Manchus had believed propaganda at the time that stated the British killed all prisoners, so they resisted brutally, of which uh, one English participant recalled, quoting, A frightful scene of slaughter ensued despite the efforts of British officers to restrain their men. By 11 a.m., the Chinese flag was lowered and the Union Jack flew up in its place. 600 Manchus had died. 
100 were taken prisoner, and the British had roughly 30 casualties, none of which were fatal, apparently. Of these 30 wounded men, apparently it wasn't even caused by the defenders, but rather an accident, an explosion from an overheated artillery piece. I think it goes without saying that the British officers that are uh, giving this piece of information are stretching the truth a little bit. The Chinese defenders fled the city as British ships shelled them. The, the nemesis set ablaze 11 Chinese warships at anchor using Congrave rockets. The Chinese artillery at the fort and on the war junks did not return fire. To escape the hellstorm bombardment, most defenders fled or jumped in the water where British gunfire killed many who were trying to swim away. Those inside the forts were burned and disfigured with their adequated matchlock gunpowder exploding on them, added to the British gunfire also. The seizure of Chumbai was followed by a naval battle at Ansons Bay, which was little more than a rout. The steamship Nemesis demonstrated that it was a navy onto itself, firing on 15 Chinese war junks alone. One Congrave rocket from Nemesis had the blind luck of hitting a Chinese junk powder magazine, blowing it to pieces. The remaining junks began to flee, and Nemesis just followed them. Honestly, if you read accounts about this ship, Nemesis, it's incredible. This terrified them. No one had ever seen a warship like this. Kushan met Elliot for another parlay at the Lotus Flower Wall, 26 miles south of Canton. Elliot showed up with an intimidating entourage of 50 Royal Marines and 15-member Fire and Drum Band members. By January 20th, 1841, they negotiated what would be known as the Chumbai Convention. The British agreed to buy Hong Kong for $6 million, ambassadors would be exchanged, all contact between the two powers would be direct and official, no more, it would be official that there would be no more tribute-bearing barbarian situations. So the trade would resume. The British also agreed to return the captured forts, including Chushan Island. The Chinese were to pay $6 million in reparations for the war costs, thus completely neutralizing the purchase of Hong Kong, if you think about it, making it free. Uh, Kushan presumed that the emperor and his court would agree to this indemnity because they planned to extort the sum of money from the Hong merchants, which they did. So the Chinese had a little, little sneaky deal in all this as well. Palmerston was outraged when he found out that Elliot did not demand reimbursement for 20,000 opium chests. And the emperor was very outraged by Kushan for selling Hong Kong. When Elliot received news from Palmerston, it read that the British government would not ratify the agreement. On the same day, the emperor ordered Kushan to stop negotiations with the barbarians because military reinforcements were being sent to Canton from the interior of China. 70-year-old General Yang Fang was sent, an unlikely choice for Generalissimo to be the last hope for China to wrestle sovereignty from the encroaching British. Fang Yang was reportedly so deaf at this point in his career, he gave orders to his men in writing only. The emperor also enlisted his cousin, Yishan, to be the new diplomat to Canton. On February the 1st, 1841, despite the Chumbai Convention not being agreed upon, Elliot unilaterally proclaimed Hong Kong British territory. Why not? Kyushan met Elliot again at the second bar, an island 20 miles southeast of Canton, refusing to put the imperial seal on the Convention of Chumbai. None of this mattered, of course. 
Qushan had already been fired by the emperor, and he was simply too embarrassed to let the British know. On February the 26th, 1841, in order to secure the Canton Riverway, the Melville, Queen, Wellesley, Druid, Modest, began to shell forts on Wangtong and Unyongoi, I'm so sorry, I probably wrecked that name, islands. The stationary guns of the forts yet again shot over the British ships aimlessly, as they sadly always do in this. Within 15 minutes, the Chinese stopped firing as Anglo-Indian soldiers landed on Wangtong. The unfortunate Chinese, crammed into trenches, begged for mercy. It is reported that the Indian soldiers began executing prisoners while British officers tried to stop them. But I would take that with a grain of salt. It again smells like British propaganda. When the forces took the empty forts, it was found out that the defenders had begun retreating as soon as the landing had even begun. Within two hours, the forts of Anyungwai were also taken with minimal effort. Elliot almost died during all of this when a cannonball was shot at him while he was reclined in his hammock on deck of his ship. How truly British of him. Over a thousand Chinese were taken prisoner. Old Admiral Khan was found dead with a bayonet in his chest, unfortunately. The British gave the old warrior a cannon salute from Blemheim and allowed his family to retrieve his body and sail off with it. With all the forts fallen, uh, the mouth of the Canton River and the gateway to Canton now belonged to the British. The British continued to Canton, removing barrier chains and demolishing forts as the Armada approached Canton City. Its 10,000 residents began to flee. The harbor was too shallow for Nemesis, so Elliot took her unaccompanied up the Canton River, destroying more forts and nine Chinese warships, because the Nemesis was certainly just a, a nightmare. <laughs> to do this solo. The Chinese had never seen a steamship before, and the nemesis was literally, you know, it could just handle them. So the emperor had Kishan arrested and put into chains, his entire fortune and land taken from him, and he was sentenced to hard labor in China's northern border with Russia. Poor Kishan. On March 13th, 1841, the British had seized Canton, destroying all Chinese ships and harbor and all the defensive structures within the city. A representative, Hao Kwai, the most influential Chinese merchant who dealt with the British, begged Elliot for a truce on behalf of General Fang. However, however, this would be, it would just turn out to be a feint. While a truce occurred, the opium trade resumed, now under full British protection. Elliot turned a blind eye to the illicit trade, of course. General Fang urged the emperor to allow the opium trade to continue because he reasoned if the British occupied themselves with making money, perhaps they would have little time for war. He was probably right. Anyways, the emperor dismissed this, saying, if trade were the solution to the problem, why would it be necessary to transfer and dispatch generals and troops? Fair point by the emperor. By the end of March 1841, Elliot and his staff decided to attack Amoy, about 400 miles northeast of Canton, with a date set for the second week of May. Chinese troops began to amass around Canton, and Fang used this as a bargaining chip. Elliot headed the, heeded the warning, but instead of suing for peace, he cancelled the attack of, on, on Amoy and concentrated on the armed camp at Canton. May 25th, 1841, Nemesis towed 70 sailing ships full of 2,000 troops to Qingpu 
two miles northwest of Canton. It was the ideal location to march on the massed Chinese forces at Canton. Before they could attack on May the 27th, however, a Mandarin waving a white flag arrived at a nearby fort. While waiting for the Chinese commander to negotiate on May 29th, General Fang suddenly broke the truce and attacked Canton with the battle cry, exterminate the rebels. Chinese troops began looting and tearing down the factories in Canton, but the British safely sailed up the Pearl River, bombarding the walls of Canton while they did so. The occupiers of Canton numbered 20,000 and began to fortify the city. Another ceasefire was agreed to. This time the Chinese promised to pay 6 million within 7 days if the British did not attack and or sack Canton. Yishan came to Canton to oversee the payment of $6 million. Having deemed Canton factories safe for its residents, Elliot turned away from Canton to sail for Hong Kong now. Unfortunately, on April the 30th, 1841, Elliot was dismissed by Palmerston while he was in Hong Kong preparing for an attack on Amoy still. Elliot had enraged Parliament too many times and was giving meager settlements with the Chinese. Didn't look good on him. Six million was a fraction of the cost of the 20,000 chests of opium. Elliot's replacement was to be Sir Henry Pottinger, a previous diplomat for the East India Company, as Sir William Parker became Commander-in-Chief and Major General Go would command land forces. On August 21st, 1841, the new armada of 32 ships and 27,000 men set en route for Amoy. Amoy was fortified with 200 guns to defend the harbor, 42 guns, and 10,000 troops to defend the citadel alone. On nearby Kolongzhu Island, which protected the approach to Amoy, was, six, was over 76 guns. Modest, Blonde, and Druid blasted the walls of Kolongzhu from over 400 yards away, while Kolongzhu's guns could do absolutely nothing. After 96 minutes of fire on Amoy, the Chinese guns fell silent and the British troops landed without opposition. 26 Chinese warships were all put up commission in harbor. Sir Hugo personally led a bayonet charge, circling around the fortress on Amoy as the Manchu defenders shot back with matchlock rifles. The Manchus were utterly destroyed and their commander committed suicide by drowning himself. When the invaders searched for loot, there was none to be had, as the defenders had run off with all of it. After weeks of delay due to storms, the armada left a garrison to defend Amoy and then set off yet again for Chushan. By September 25, 1841, the armada attacked the fort of Dinghai on the island of Chushan, taking it while only receiving a single casualty. The Manchu commander, General Kyo, slit his own throat when he realized the battle was lost. The Chinese had over 1,500 casualties. Yeah, some of these Chinese commanders, they, they got it rough. During this time in September, the British ship, Nerbuda, was transporting British and Indian troops, and it went around Taiwan. In March, the Brig An, transporting opium, was also going around Taiwan. Chinese soldiers were able to seize them, they stripped them naked and put them all in chains. The Chinese would propagandize this as a major naval victory to the emperor receiving praise and rewards even. Over 197 prisoners were then executed, which would add much fuel to the British cause. 
After a week in Jinghai, the British left a garrison and proceeded now to Jinhai, 10 miles east of the mainland. On October the 10th, they attacked 4,000 Chinese troops defending the city and its citadel. By flanking the enemy, Go, who commanded the British land forces of 1500, managed to take the fort in less than 24 hours after a vigorous pounding by the ships Wellesley and Blumheim. By early afternoon, Jinghai belonged to the British, who suffered three fatalities, while several hundred Chinese died defending the city. On October 13th, the British attacked Ningbo, 10 miles southeast of Jinghai, and the city opened its gates to the invaders to the invaders without a fight, as the Royal Irish Band played St. Patrick Day in the morning. The British plundered around $160,000 worth of municipal funds, and the British would then settle there for the winter. Now it needs to be noted, all these easy victories the British had, they were Pyrrhic, due to illness or all the garrisons required uh, to be left behind for the conquered territories. Go found of his 2,500 troops, they were reduced now to just 700 men capable of fighting. The emperor at last took action, and he sent his other cousin, Yijing, to Xiaochou, 50 miles northwest of Ningbo, to recruit more Chinese to oust the invaders. Yijing was a veteran of wars against Muslim rebels in Zhejiang province. Unlike career soldiers, Yijing was a noble scholar, and most of the men under him were scholars. They were sometimes referred to as intellectual weekend warriors who would be known to overcome fears by smoking opium. Needless to say, they didn't have the greatest military skill and everyone kind of knew it at the time. On March the 10th, 1842, Yijing's ill-trained force of 5,000 intellectuals attacked Yingbo where they were met the gates by impaled head with a sign reading, this is the head of the Manchu official Lu Tela, who came here to obtain military information. Enraged by this, the attackers scaled the walls and ran to the center of the city, where 150 of Gao's men repelled the force, which appeared to be visibly impaired by opium, including the general Zhang Zhigong. Zhang reportedly collapsed in a narcotic daze with an opium pipe still in his mouth as his men fled, abandoning him. This must have been quite the scene. Uh, the British won this battle using howitzers, which tore the enemy into pieces, piling shattered corpses at a height of apparently 15 feet. Wow. Tragically, a volunteer force of 150 Aboriginal Chinese from Golden River were part of this attack. Instead of using their matchlocks, they took up their traditional spears and, when attacking, were annihilated by musket fire. Every single man died, all 150 of them, tragically. The regular Chinese forces suffered 500 casualties in the attack of Ningbo, and of course the British did not lose a man. All these reports are coming from British officers, so, like I keep saying in this, Grain of salt is needed. Uh, for failing to retake Ningbo, the emperor sentenced Yijing to death. But in a usual fashion, this turned into a more lenient sentence, and instead he was appointed to a position in Turkestan, which apparently was horrible. This was seen as a huge insult to him. Don't know what's wrong with Turkestan at the time, I guess it was rough. The next big battle would be on May the 18th, 1842, when the British landed at Champu, a town 75 miles northwest of Chushan. 
the British only found 300 Manchu who had barricaded themselves in a Josh house, refusing to surrender. As a result, the British blew up the stone wall and set fire to the house. When the British finally got into the house, to their absolute horror, they found all the Manchus had poisoned themselves and their wives and their children within. This was because there was a Manchu tradition to not be taken alive. The defenders valiantly delayed the fall of the city for a few hours. The next attack would occur on June 16 at Wusong, at the mouth of the Yangtze River, which controlled uh, the river flow all the way to Nanking. This would be known as the Battle of Wusong, where the British bombarded multiple forts on the river and captured Wusong and Baoshan. Hundreds of Chinese were killed and, wound and wounded as the British lost two men. So at least this time the British reported two, two men, because I guess it would have been too much to say that no one died again. On June the 19th, Shanghai was taken without a shot. The residents of Shanghai tried to bribe the British with $300,000 to not loot the city, but the British did so regardless. Despite Shanghai's strategic and commercial importance, the British stayed there for only a week before moving on to their real target, Nanking. But before the British could attack Nanking, the walled city of Xinjiang, 50 miles west of Nanjing, had to be taken. Excuse me, I keep saying Nanking, Nanjing. I think I'll, I'll say Nanjing from here on. Odd point of naming things. On July the 21st, 1842, three British brigades landed outside the city walls. Manchus and Mongolian bannermen fired down from the walls using 18th century guns called Jingals, which were so heavy and unwieldy they had to be fired from tripods. Grenadiers smashed through the city's main gate, bayoneting the Manchus. 2,800 defenders barricaded themselves in the city, many taking their own lives by strangulation, poison, or throat cutting. The, Man the Manchu commander, General He Lin, had everyone gather court papers, pile them up high, and lit them on fire. Estimates were that over 1,000 Chinese were killed or wounded, while the British suffered roughly about 30 casualties, who they claimed all died from dehydration and not the Chinese defenders. How, how very cute of the British officers to state this. The emperor now panicked, as it seemed the British would get all the way to Peking. He appointed Yilubu, the viceroy of Nanjing and Jijang, as plenopotentiaries. Plenopotentiaries. Excuse me, that was a difficult word. It was an English one for once to deal with the invaders. They were under orders from the emperor to do anything, promise everything, but halt the British advance before it reached the capital. I think I'm going to have something put up to define when I said the word plenipotentiaries. It's a very old-fashioned word. I imagine I have never heard that one before. I forgot in my research I even wrote this one down. My bad. British land forces approached the walls of Nanjing with 74-gun Cornwallis and Blondie. Before they could fire, Yilibu showed up the white flag immediately. I mean, thank God he did. Negotiations went on for quite a few days. Yilibu attempted an arrogant stance at the beginning, but Pottinger was quite blunt and threatening, going on to say, after Nanjing Falls, the capital was next. Yilibu was attempting the classic Chinese passive-aggressive ploy of using procrastination instead of negotiation, conceding nothing and hoping to worry the enemy rather than defeat them outright. 
The British had become so accustomed to this ploy by this point, they informed him that Nanjing would be attacked on August the 13th, promptly. The next day, Yulubu swallowed his pride and made a personal appearance upon the Queen, promising to begin serious negotiations now. Four days of back-and-forth negotiations created a treaty, but despite his claim of plenipotentiary, Yulubu asked to send a copy to the Emperor for approval, which the British accepted. While waiting for word from Peking, Pottinger questioned Yulubu about the opium trade, which was the reason for the onset of the war, and the Chinese were actually very unwilling to talk about it. Promising to make the minutes secret, however, Yulubu suggested then the British stop the production of the crop in India, to which Pottinger countered that if the British stopped, some other nation would just pick up the trade in their stead. Pottinger threw in the face Yulubu that if your people are virtuous, they will desist the evil practice and if your officers are incorruptible and obey their orders, no opium can enter your country. The Chinese realized the opium issue was a deal breaker, and the empire desperately needed a deal, so they dropped the matter completely. The Treaty of Nanjing consisted of 6 million towards the confiscated opium by Lin Zexu, $3 million in compensation for the debts that Hong Kong merchants owed the British merchants, and a further $12 million in war reparations for the total sum of $21 million to be paid over in three years. The Qing government was to release all British prisoners of war, and the British were to withdraw all troops from Nanjing. The British were to remain in Gulangye and Zhaobashan until the Qing government paid reparations in full. The treaty also handed over Hong Kong to Britain and the right of permanent residence in the ports of Canton, Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai. The treaty made no mention of the cause of all of this hardship, i.e. the opium trade. It ended the old Canton system, but it did not resolve the status of opium traffic, which was still in favor of the British, remember. For his service in settling the Chinese matter, the leader of the early Victorian Vikings, as the Times called them, Sir Henry Pottinger, was rewarded with the post of Governor of Madras. Charles Eliot did penance for his perceived failure, being appointed to the backwaters of Bermuda, Trinidad, and St. Helena, which was symbolically chosen as uh, the place where Napoleon was also exiled. It's kind of cool. Uh, Jardin and Mount Matheson both entered Parliament after the Chinese affair, pushing for more expansionism, because let's not forget that actual merchants were responsible for most of this, and this is all about money. Hao Kuo, the main Chinese merchant who dealt with Jardin and Matheson, died of diarrhea a year after the Treaty of Nanking, Nanjing. Excuse me. Governor General Lin's effigy was placed at a museum. Under his statue was a plaque claiming he had destroyed 2.5 million dollars worth of British property without mentioning that the property was opium and contraband. The emperor forgave Lin in 1845 and assigned him a new post in Canton where he died shortly in 1850. Qijing remained in favor while Yulubu was sent in exile bound in chains by the emperor. That's the end of the First Opium War, and tragically, the Treaty of Nanjing would only be a truce and not an end to hostilities. 
Among the terms and conditions of the treaty, no mention was ever made of the opium that which was, you know, that was the entire problem in the first place. Officially, the drug remained illegal to use and import. Unofficially, it continued to thrive as an illicit business, providing the conditions for a second opium war. Similar to the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Nanjing caused more problems than it solved. China was under humiliating conditions, surrendering symbolic and practical forms of sovereignty to Britain. This would all boil over 14 years until outright aggressions, which would commence in 1856. So let's just summarize all this. This has been a really long episode, after all. The first opium war was started by private merchants pushing the British Parliament over confiscated opium. The British Parliament realized they could go to war and make China pay for it. The British technological superiority won them the war alongside a pretty incompetent Chinese military. Chinese officials lied to their emperor about the status of the war, prolonging it and making it even worse. The entire war ended up with a very harsh and humiliating treaty, which would just be a precursor for yet again another opium war in the future. I really hoped you enjoyed this extremely long episode I thought was going to be about 25 minutes and after reading this entire script I believe it's going to be about 45 minutes we'll see if I'm right or wrong. The next episode will be on, you guessed it, the second opium war. If you have not already subscribed or left a like and or comment please do so. We want to know what we can do better, what you would be more interested in, maybe things I can change with my tempo. Hey maybe you don't like the background. I'm not changing the bird though. She's, she's going to stay here. Isn't that right? Earl Grey. This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out.